You're listening to Battle Red Radio. I'm at Weston tonight. I'm joined by Scott, as you know, as L4 Blitzer, the purveyor of Totally Fake News, to discuss the Texans' win over the Los Angeles Chargers. How are you doing tonight, Scott? Oh, I'm doing great. Doing great. Wonderful Christmas, and then the Texans threw in a nice little surprise at the end. So, lovely Boxing Day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things now whenever the team is you know, as bad as they are at the moment or it's like it's hard to get amped up for you know, like a win when you only have three of them at the moment and that whole sort of thing or, or whatever it is now. They have four because they beat the Jaguars twice. Um, but you just kind of like want to root for something that's enjoyable and interesting and I do think they provided that with their scab roster and you know what Davis Mills did this week playing his second good game in back-to-back weeks. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I know, and I'm sure we'll debate this a little later on too, like the whole, you know, you're trying to find draft position, but again, where's the can't-miss prospect? Yeah, you know, you know, defensive lineman prospect for me, the Michigan or Oregon would be great, but, you know, or either of those, like the can't-miss guy, I don't know. And the Texans more than likely are going to end up with still with a fairly high draft pick. You know, we get to debate a first round draft pick for the first time in like two years. So um, I, I think, you know, that part will play out. Uh, but, you know, ultimately it's entertainment. And for a fan, you do want to see them win. And the way they played, particularly going against the grain, you know, they were actually competitive in the second half and really took it to a team that was fighting for their playoff lives, you know, a squad that, you know, ten with you know two weeks prior to the game was legitimately thinking not just the division but possibly the top seed in the AFC, and you know they they lose a tough one against Kansas City and then then they come to Houston and figure they'll just you know do enough and Houston implodes. Houston didn't, and now you know San Diego's on the outside looking in as of the playoff picture this morning. You know, as of this morning. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's the way that's the way football goes sometimes. Uh, as we know, like any given Sunday and that sort of thing. So the Texans had 23 players on the COVID-19 list. The big injury news for the Chargers was that they were out. We they were without Corey Lindsley, their starting center, which led to uh, Scott Questenberry in the start at the center position in a game that CBS going into thought was gonna be so boring. They wanted to amp up the fact there were two brothers, one from a practice squad, and Paul Questenberry for the Texans, and then backup center and the Chargers Questenberry uh, for going up against each other, try to get you excited about this game. They're also missing Joey Bosa, defensive end, who's like missing you, know, J.J. Watt, where he's the entirety of their pass rush. And they were also missing um, Austin Eckler, too. And that didn't really seem to matter because Justin Jackson had a great game making cutbacks in the outside zone game. They probably missed him in the passing game more than the rushing game. Uh, but the Chargers had no problems running the ball. But the Texans had 23 players on the COVID list. And like you mentioned, the Chargers were looking to be a playoff team going into this game be able to kind of like solidify that position by being, you know, a team that'd be a game and a half up on some other teams. Instead, the Texans threw a glob of paint down their playoff sink. So the narrative after this game now, though, 
really isn't about the Chargers or about the Texans and David Coley, you know, pulling off the unthinkable at the back of the roster. It's Davis Mills. And it's, is Davis Mills a franchise quarterback? Is he the second best rookie quarterback in the NFL? Is he the no doubt starter for the Texans in 2021? Uh, what's your take on Davis Mills and how he's played since he's come back from the benching for Tyrod Taylor compared to the first part of the season? Well, uh, there's never a, a simple answer. I mean, granted, his first few games starting, it's at Indianapolis, at Buffalo, you know, against New England, who, I mean, didn't, you know, didn't play terrible against a, a Belichick team that usually is hell on earth against rookies. So he got one heck of a baptism under fire and, you know, then went back to the bench, comes back. Competition isn't quite the same level. I mean, Jacksonville, San Diego defense versus you know, the Colts or Buffalo. Um, yeah. So, but I, I think there's been some maturation. I think, you know, Kelly maybe is trying to let him, you know, actually throw the ball a little bit more and not like handcuff him with a super conservative offense. Uh, it also didn't hurt that Davis Mills had a running game, arguably for the first time since high school. You know, I don't remember all of Stanford's rushing stats last year when he played for him, but He's had like no running game to lean on, which if you can get that balance, and I know we joke about balance, but if you've got it, then your defense has to play honest and they can't pin their ears back and go after the passer, which is what he'd been seeing for so often. Uh, so all of that to say that I'm not cre quite ready to anoint him like best quarterback prospect of the draft. Um, I do think, He's warned very legitimate considerations for starting the 2022 season, you know, as the starting quarterback. Do I think he's the franchise quarterback? Um, not quite. I think we got to see a lot more from him before I, I feel that way. But the biggest thing I think that does is if he can keep this solid play going for the next couple games and keeps that up through, you know, the offseason, this actually helps the franchise writ large so then they're not in a position where they have to overdraft or sell out for a quarterback prospect where this draft you don't necessarily have the type of prospects you had last draft and, and people are going to overdraft quarterbacks anyway but last you know yeah trevor lawrence um zach wilson you know and how they've played this season one thing but if you're looking at that prospect list you had a number of guys that were legit top 15 and not just nfl overdrafting they were pretty good prospects so I, I think the biggest thing is, yeah, he's in play for that. And now the Texans, I don't think, are should be forced into going for a quarterback in the first round when he, that quarterback may not really rate that high. You can got to go best player available because goodness knows we got holes all over the roster. And if you end up with a prospect that fits where you line up draft, you don't overdraft, whatever, fine. But you don't have to sell out the draft to try to get a quarterback that may or may not work, and then you're still set back anyway. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think what Davis Mills has done this year is he went from unplayable and unwatchable whenever he first came on after Tyrod Taylor popped his hamstring to now that he's been out there, like he's been a playable quarterback. He's still like overall for the entire course of the year, he's been a bottom five quarterback. He's put together two good games last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars team who is you know, completely falling apart. Um, who wasn't able to create mm -hmm. much pressure at all on him, who couldn't create very many tackles for a loss against him too. Said a lot of manageable, easy third downs. Um, you know, he threw a touchdown pass off of a like a nice like combo breaker, you know, 
Charlotte running that sprint ride option, but then Brand Cook's breaking up the seam. He made one really great throw to Dorsett. And aside from that, like he was, you know, just very average. Like he threw four, like barely above 200 yards. But I think last week he had a great game. And he also had a great game against the New England Patriots. And, you know, this week I think there's two things he did very well. One was splitting the hooks of that cover four defense, the Chargers run, where like their linebacker depth is kind of. The linebacker play just kind of sucks. Like, it's Kazir White. It's Drew Tranquil. Kenneth Murray hasn't done much, and Murray's having to play some defensive end this week with their injury, mm-hmm. Joey Bosa, too. But with those three, you know, hook defenders, there's just a lot more grass available there, and the and the flats open, too. And so Texas did a lot of things where they ran, they ran those drag routes, and they just stopped in the middle of, you know, the hook defenders to create open throws. They ran, you know, those out routes at Brevin Jordan where he was able to get free against, you know, a linebacker covering the seam. And, uh, and like those were like great routes by Jordan, um, but it's like it's also against a team with bad linebacker play too. And then the second thing he did well was he actually threw the ball with, with touch down the sideline. And we hadn't seen him do do that since you know that garbage time throw to Brand Cooks against the Los Angeles Rams, and then also those fluky throws against the New England Patriots. And the weird thing about Mills was that you know in college at Stanford, if you watch his video. The best thing that he showed was the ability to throw a touchdown the sideline, and then now he had some Kelly, and he's in the NFL, and they like really kind of like slowly, you know, like nurtured his way, you know, by not even really running an NFL offense to start the year off to try to like stave off embarrassment, and now like for whatever reason they decide now is the time to actually let him kind of let loose some. I think the touchdown Chris Conley was like he mentioned in his post game press conference. I think it was one of those route combinations against Cover Four where you run the vertical as a clear out. And then you hit the out route underneath in that space that's vacated. But like, uh, Tavon Campbell's not a good cornerback, and that was a matchup that Chris Conley was able to win on that one. That back shoulder throw to Phil Dorsett was a, a great throw as far as placement goes, and Dorsett made a really nice catch to bring that in too. But it's like that was his best skill. We finally saw you know some of that this past week, and so I'm not ready to say like I'm excited to watch Davis Mills next year because I'm not. I'm not ready to say I think Davis Mills is going to be good yet because I still don't think so necessarily. But I think he has at least played himself into consideration to start next year. But like I do think going into next season, even though there's two games left to play, I think he can go into next year having a quarterback competition. But you can't be like, Mills is the guy that's it. I think you have to spend you know, like $7 to $10 million for a veteran or you know, draft one of the quarterbacks that fall to the second round or ball to the bottom part of the first round. You have three first round picks this year. Or like maybe you can get Howell in the second round or you can get Willis in the second round or you know whoever if there's some sort of falling a quarterback. And that way you can keep adding talent to the position as you try to work that work its way out. Where it's like until you know you have a quarterback, you still have to do everything you can every year to find a quarterback. And I don't think Mills has played his way into being like the no doubt solid starter going into 2022 because there are so many games before these last two weeks where he was abysmal and awful and terrible and all those, you know, uh, adjectives that describe his performance very well. Yeah, I think, and that's the biggest thing. Like, again, not ready to say he's even like, you know, early Matt Schaub under Kubiak level. It's, he's, but he's at least not so unplayable or so unwatchable. I think, and the biggest thing is that I don't feel the Texans have to, again, sell out the draft to look for the the chosen one at quarterback. They can kind of play the draft board, honestly, look for that true best player available at that position. And if you get a prospect that falls in the second, third round or 
you know, this is they're trying to turn Patriots south. So obviously you need to find a good one in the sixth round because Tom Brady. So, you know, I, you don't have to overdraft, I think, for a quarterback. I'm not saying that yeah, in 2023 he'll be the star rider, but I, I think this at least helps the Texans in their rebuild, which is probably still going to be a multi-season variant, given like the salary cap uh, buffoonery we're going to be stuck in for uh, at least 2022. But mm-hmm. yeah, I th- I agree yeah, with that. I, it's that, like it's set up now with Mills, like the way he's played that. You can't. You don't go into this draft to be at three first round picks, for example, and you're sitting there at fifteen, and you know there's two quarterbacks left, and you're at eleven, and you're like, we have to give a second round pick to get one of those guys. It opens the door like you can mm-hmm. kind of do what New England did last year, where you kind of hang out and wait until your guy may fall to you, and if he doesn't fall to you, it's not the end of the world. You can find another quarterback in a different sort of avenue, though. But I do think next year they either have to draft a guy in you know the second or third round again. Um, and it seems like the way like the quarterback stuff looks right now, you could probably get a quarterback in the second round that has some talent to it. Or you, know, you sign veteran, you do the Tyrod Taylor thing, and give them $10 million a year. You just get a quarterback who's actually you know pretty good instead of Taylor, who wasn't you know, good last year, who wasn't good uh, for a few years now, who's had injury history problems and everything else that goes along with it too. And so I think you still have to find competition and talent the position and uh, still push Mills next year. But going to the idea that like he's probably gonna be your starter week one, um, but you still I still don't think you can be like this is it. We don't need to do much here. We don't need to just add Ryan Finley yeah, as our no, backup. I, you know. I completely agree. I think um, he ain't that good a situation overall, and you know he's. I think he's gonna carve himself out a decent career in some shape, form, or fashion. But yeah, he, he's not ironclad lock starter. But you. You know, if he is the guy for 2022, then you're like, okay, then he's serviceable and not like, oh, dear Lord, please, let's get on to 2023, that type of thing. Yeah, but that's my fear about Mills being the starter in 2022. Because, like, if you look at his entire season this year, like, I know he's a third-round quarterback and he needed time to come along and he didn't play at Stanford all all that much. And there's, like, a lot of tools and everything that went along with it. I'm just worried about, like, the idea of having to watch, you know, 12, 14, 16 Mills games in 2022 doesn't interest me very much. And so like, I want to make sure at least there's some sort of backup option or some sort of plan B, whether it's the form of a young quarterback who may have not panned out somewhere else that you know you have maybe some sort of alert potential there or even drafting a quarterback in the you know, second or third round again next year to at least have like something else to kind of you know keep adding to the pot because I don't think I think we're so far yeah. away from a spot where we can be like Mills is a solid starter. I think he's still been a bot. I think he's like a bottom six quarterback right now, and that's what you want for like a backup quarterback, you know. Or like if he goes out there, you can yeah. still run an offense and you have a chance to win a game. But I don't think he's a he has the ability yet to be like, yeah, we can maybe win, you know, eight games with him or something like that. Yeah, no, we're <laughs> and. and... He's not a guy that's going to carry the offense by himself, clearly. Uh, and as we know, the you know the Texans got <laughs> they've got plenty of um, plenty of open positions for talent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, uh, they need it. So, and I've I've seen some stuff this past two weeks also in Mills where I guess maybe not like expected or he he can be, but there's hope that he could be like Matt Schaub as far as being a third round quarterback and everything else, but like. Shaw was in the league, I think, for three years before the Texans traded for him and actually played you know, like a half season his third year. Um, and also, I think people forget, too, like Shaw was a fringe top 10 quarterback. 
He was a Pro Bowl quarterback. He you know, carried an entire offense by himself. And like if you think Mills, based on what he's done this year, is going to be a Pro Bowl quarterback eventually, I think it's either you think they can build an offensive system that can maximize his talents you know, by his ability to throw the ball downfield. He showed a bit more athleticism, a little bit more of ability to throw on the run they should stand for those sort of things. And then two, you're just hoping and wishing a lot, you know. And so I don't think it's like if you're looking at this like rationally from how to make the Texans good again or, and whenever that's going to happen, um, I think there's still like a lot of like projection and kind of prayers associated with you know, Mills being a, a good starting quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, I think. And, of course, the other thing was Schaub, too, that he came into a much better uh, talent situation than Mills. I mean, you had – uh, you know, the Kubiak running game, which, you know, with Arian Foster and Steve Slayton and those guys, you know, you, you had a legit running game. And this past game notwithstanding, uh, yeah, we've had no running game to speak of, of, of any significance. So, um, yeah, it's not quite an, uh, an apples-to-apples apples comparison there. Um, so, you know, you, you, and this is really going to be the big offseason for Nick Casario here, like, okay – what are you going to do now that you have like, you know, you're going to have more, almost a full complement of draft picks. You've hamstrung yourself on the free agent side with the salary cap. And then of course, whatever you're going to do with Deshaun Watson, that's going to be a, that'll be a real interesting uh, situation to watch. So. Yeah. I mean, this um, is the the big off season for him because whatever, like his whole tenure is going to be decided by the Watson trade when he gets for him. And the second part is that nailing the draft picks that come along with Watson too. And so, like, I don't know. I just think, like, with Mills, there's just the problem that the Texans fan base has right now is that there's not a lot of things to be excited for, you know, and yep. like, oh, as yeah. early as next year. And so, like, Mills being average against the Jaguars is such an enormous thing. And Mills being, you know, really good against the Chargers is an enormous thing. And if you just, like, I've watched, I, aside from the Chargers game, I'm still working on you know, chewing through that video. Like, I've watched every snap Mills had, like, the all 22 side of it. And, like, I've just been, like, I, I still remember so vividly uh, the game against Arizona and, you know, and that, game, and that game against Indy came in for Taylor and things like that where he was just, you know, so bad that uh, I still, like, I vividly remember that so much that even though these last two weeks have been pretty good and great, it still doesn't override how bad some of, some of it was throughout the year. But it goes back to, like, he's a young quarterback, he's a third-round pick, he didn't have a whole lot of experience at Stanford, all that sort of stuff. I understand that. But I think it's just like, it's going to be hopeful for, and that's why there's such a large, you know, drum beating for Mills. But I'm still, you know, really far and away from uh, being, a, I don't know, like a millionaire, is that, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, it, and that that is, you know, a big thing. Obviously, if you're looking to build a football team, you know, you want to try to build the winner and contender. But, yeah, I mean, what else are you going to get excited about for the Texans? There is no Q rating on this team with, you know, J.J. Watt off in Arizona and, you know, Deshaun Watson now devolving into toxic asset territory. Um, it just, you had no reason to pay attention to the Texans whatsoever. Yeah, I, uh, and, yeah, that makes sense. Go ahead. So, you know, in the midst of trying to get the talent, I think something that does have to be kept in mind is what's going to bring the fans back to the to the stadium, you know? Because we've seen all the photos of the fans and how it's just devolved. Where even when the team wasn't necessarily great, the people wanted to care. But you have to really try to make people apathetic about football in Texas. Like 
you have to seriously try to do that. And Tom McNair and Jack used to be, they've done it. Yeah, it's like hating <laughs> God in Jerusalem, you know? Yeah, well, not even caring about God in Jerusalem, that's like the ultimate thing. I mean, you can you can despise, but at least that being, indicates being a passion in, at this in, point. Being ambivalent to God in Jerusalem. Yeah, that at that point, you've hit a level, and that's... So, you know, and I'm not sure how the value of the franchise will be impacted with declining ticket sales and all that, but I think they do need to figure something out, like what's going to bring fans back? I mean, especially knowing that you're probably not going to be a contending team in 2022. I mean, we'll have to see how the moves shake out and maybe lightning in a bottle, but, you know, this is probably a longer-term rebuild than, you know, what happened in 2013 and moving into 14 and what have you. This uh, it's going to take some time, but ultimately the NFL is an entertainment business. Why do people want to watch and care about the Texans? And yeah. yeah, like you said, I mean, Davis Mills, okay, if he plays great, that's nice. And maybe that's something, but that ain't going to help Q rating. I mean, you know, Davis Mills isn't going to put butts in seats. So what are you going to do to try to inspire people to want to come back and spend their hard earned money to watch this product? Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that's like the and biggest thing about, and I think it's the biggest thing about next year too. It's like just having a team that's fun to watch. Like I don't think they're gonna be good at all necessarily. Yeah. I think they're probably at least two years away from that. And like it's you, a rebuild can be quick in the NFL, but just like being fun, having fun players, and having like guys who look like you know franchise cornerstones because the Texans lack that. They have guys who maybe you know complementary players on a good team, but not necessarily leading a good team. And like the best example I can think of maybe for the Texans next year. It's probably the 2019 Dolphins because that was the Dolphins team that really like scraped, like didn't have any talent on it just yet. Um, they mm-hmm. won some games down the stretch. They kind of figured it out like a defensive style that they wanted to play. They start off 0-7. They start playing younger players after that. They got guys kind of like stranger sources of talent that kind of stepped up too. They were able to play their, their younger players more as well um, and kind of like found something at the end of the year. They were like kind of fun to watch. By the time the end of the season came around, they ended up winning 10 games and drafted two of the year after that. And I think that's like what you're hoping for for the 2022 Texans, expecting them to go from like worst to first is, I think, outside the, the realm of possibility at the moment. But just having like fun things there. Like if Mills is a starter, that's the best thing that could happen to the Texans, to have a starting quarterback on a third-round salary. Because you can build, if he's the 18th best quarterback, you can build a Super Bowl team around that. And if he's the 24th best quarterback, you can't do so. But then you can be able to trade him, keep him as a backup, or draft a quarterback next year. And so I think there's like a, a better array of outcomes um, you know, after the way he's played you know, these past few weeks. But I still have not gotten myself there to be overly excited for Davis Mills 2022 just yet. Oh, I'm not saying I'm necessarily you know going to go out and buy his jersey or anything, but I... Yeah, it's just they, they've lacked a serious Q rating, and you need something. I mean, if, if the biggest thing is like that your backup safety is dating the GOAT for gymnastics, okay, but, you know, you, you got to have something on the team. Why, you know, some sort of personality or something. Like, why, why should I tune in? You know, and that's, yeah. that's been the biggest, and that's probably been the hardest thing about this team is because even some of the other teams that derped, there was, you know, 05 might have been even worse than this, barely. But, you know, that was kind of a team that was thought to be on the upswing, and then, whoops, banana peel. Mm-hmm. 
13 was that weird season yeah, but you had talent yeah mm-hmm. yeah but you had talent there you had watt there and and some of the the evolution of the team was kind of fun to watch in a schadenfreude way but you know you knew you figured they were going to be right back on top fairly quickly and then even last season you had watt and watson that you know those are going to two guys that would probably be worth some price of admission obviously before watson's revelation and everything that happened in this offseason. But, you know, you, you had reasons to care about the Texans, even in the midst of when they weren't doing so well. Yeah. This year? Why? Why? Who are who are these guys? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and, the, so, and, and I think the weird thing about this year, too, like, I completely agree with the thing you're saying, uh, except whenever that 13th season was going along, I was a very small minority that was like, they're going to be good next year, and they should make the playoffs next year. They just have to get a quarterback and get a head coach. And they decide not to get quarterback, and they got Bill O'Brien, and uh, and it led to you know the years after that. But I think the the thing about this season though is so it's kind of like I guess the I don't know the zeitgeist of the team right now is that because they beat Jacksonville and the Chargers, it's like everybody forgot about how miserable like the previous eleven weeks were before that, you know, and just like how much of just like a drag it was, you know, knowing you have to watch this team play. And like it's good when good things happen, like it's good when last week happened and the weekend before that. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I still don't forget about the Rams game or the games against the Chargers or the Thursday night football game against the Panthers, you know, like all these things are still very clear to me. And so like looking forward to what's going to make you excited for the team next year, it's not Davis Mills. It's going to be whoever they draft when they finally have draft capital and then whatever young town they can have in the roster for agency. Like, that's all I care about. I don't care about Davis Mills next year. I care about those sort of. Um, players and like those sort of players they can draft that will be actually like be cornerstones for the next good Texans team, you know. Like, I don't think Davis Mills is going to quarterback the next good Texans team, but I guess he at least like offers like maybe a 5% chance of that, and that's more than you know anything else that really looks like at the quarterback position at the moment from where we're at right now. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it's kind of that rebuild, but I, I feel you know. What are we going to do this offseason, particularly as you're bringing in talent and you're drafting talent, but, you know, what sort of personality? What What's that other thing? Like, yeah, you can watch that, but on the field product, you know, what they, they weren't really generating a lot of explosive plays. Um, you know, they were getting more turnovers, which was kind of nice to watch, especially after what we saw in uh, 2020. But, again, what – you know, you, you kind of have to have some degree of entertainment. And even historically, the Texans had found creative ways to lose. They were entertaining when they did it. This year, they've more or less just been boring. Yeah. And it, that's that's a hard thing. Like, at least be entertaining, even if you're going to make, like, you know, if you're going to be bad, you were almost hoping for, like, whatever they would do would be on, like, the old NFL follies, mm-hmm. you know? But they just haven't had that. And so... You know, if there's some degree of optimism, great. If you can build on that, maybe that can be a start. That's fine. And, and I think Houston, you do want to – ultimately, they do want to have a good football team in Houston. I mean, it's Texas. You know, football You know, football is only slightly below God, family, and, and state. So, you know, you, you, you want a good team. And if they can play well and be entertaining, then whatever you can grab straws at, especially this season, you'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so, like, this game specifically against the Chargers, you know, the Texans, 
came this season wanting to run the football. And instead, they had not only one of the worst run offenses in football, but in NFL history. And then all that changed this week. They went up against the worst run defense in the NFL that the Chargers run, which is like partly because they have bad talent on their defensive line where their their nose tackles are, their defensive tackles are Linval Joseph, who's like seven years away from being a dominant player, and Christian Covington, who's never been you know, very good to begin with. Uh, bad linebacker play mm-hmm. and then playing two eye shells, which you know, forces them to steal gaps in the box with their cornerback, with their nickel cornerbacks and, uh, and rotating their safeties to be a force contain. And so like, this is a really bad run defense and the Texans were able to finally take advantage of it this week. They ran the ball 36 times for 189 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, Rex Burkhead of those had 22 carries for 149, including a long at 36. Freeman had 12 carries for 34 yards. And like Royce Freeman's bad. I don't know, you know what else to tell you about that. Um, but Burkhead's like, been you know the second best running back on this team right behind Mark Ingram and like this game he had last week was probably the best performance they've had from a Texans running back since you know Lamar Miller uh, shut out the tight ends on Monday Night Football like three years ago or whatever like Burkhead was like legitimately good he broke tackles he had some really good bounces mm-hmm. on inside zone and duo runs uh, what do you think was the change in the Texans run offense this week aside from the fact they're playing a run defense that was somehow worse than their own well, to be honest, I mean, I feel like that was probably the biggest factor for him. Um, you know, I and and I think also Burkhead has never really been used as kind of that all every down back, just sort of you know pound him up the middle. But you know, we always joke about the runs up the a gap and up the middle and everything. But uh, he he actually made that work, and I mean, it was like a career day for him in his NFL career. He never rushed for anything like that. It's, it's, I'm not sure it's he his rushed football for... team. <laughs> well, I mean, if you've rushed for nearly 150 yards on a team and finally overtook the rushing lead for this squad, you finally beat a player that hasn't suited up in battle in battle red and uh, deep blue steel for nearly two months. Then okay, I guess it is your team finally. Yeah, I so, uh, I I think the kind of the biggest thing I saw differently this week, you know, aside from like. Burkhead being the first running back and like I wanted Houston to sign Burkhead I think in 2017 as like he'd be a good second back good pass catching back and it took you know four years for him to come to Houston after he's had some injuries and everything else goes along with it but I think overall the biggest difference is that they were just like getting hats on hats you know and like 60% Mm -hmm. of run blocking is just moving the line scrimmage by like a yard or not getting actively beat on the first level and then just like getting in the way of the second level. And that's 60% of getting three to four yards of carry, you know. And the Texans just struggled so much at just getting walloped to the first level and getting defensive line in the backfield and then just missing blocks entirely, whether it's because of you know, poor footwork or lunging and missing and falling or not knowing your assignments or pulling and then the defensive tackle gets in your face. Now you can't get to the second level. Whatever the reason, they haven't been able to block the second level at all. And this week I just saw a lot of guys at the second level with their helmets on the other guy, you know? And they just did a much better job of doing that than in previous weeks. And the funny thing about it, too, is that this was an offensive line that was Jaron Christian left tackle, Cole Toner, you know, leaving his ship at off at Office Depot to come play today at left guard, <laughs> Jimmy Morrissey at center, Max Sharping at right guard, and Charlie Heck at right tackle. And this is the team that gave up two quarterback hits, zero sacks, ran, had the best run game of the season for them, and... Uh, and it's just absolutely insane that the team that invested all these resources in their offensive line got the results with the 
the scabs of the roster, the absolute bottom of the barrel, you know? <laughs> I, you know, that's, that, that just seems like so much. That's kind of like par for the course for 2021 Texans that they finally get a running game again with basically like a bunch of backups that would have been lucky to make the preseason roster. So, but you know, that, I, I don't know what to tell you on that one. If they would just continue with that or they're like, no, okay, we'll get our starters back and they'll play better again. I, I don't know. But I, I think, now, granted, it probably, again, helped they were playing a really bad run defense. But then again, the Jets, I think, had our worst run defense coming in, and we couldn't do squat against them on the ground. So, I, you know, that I, I think that – I think as much as we've criticized the coaching staff, and there's a lot to criticize there, but I think the job they did this week, particularly with all of the COVID protocols, all of the upheaval, and you put – because I was thinking this, and most of these games this week, even get with better teams, have been pretty ugly. Like the Indianapolis-Arizona game, like there were stretches in the second quarter. I was like, what? You couldn't go a snap without like a penalty. They must have had like six, seven straight plays with penalties on them. And a lot of these games have been very choppy, very not fun. And the Texans had a lot of choppiness to be sure, like, you know, eight penalties in the first half. But the fact that they were able to get a lot of these guys against the team that probably by all rights should have taken them back behind the woodshed, they came out and balled like they did. I think that is a good testament to what the coaching staff, position players, and everything did this week, even with all of this upheaval. So I think you got to give full marks to the coaching staff. You blame them for the loss and stuff, but what they did this week with these, this turnover, good on them. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people haven't given like Cole and the coaching staff a lot of credit for this win. But I think it kind of like shows exactly what they wanted to do as a team entering this offseason as far as their offense goes, but they just couldn't run the ball at all. You know, their their top offensive line of Tunsil, Howard, Britt, um, Sharping, and Cannon was just horrendous, and they couldn't run the football at all. But like these last two weeks, and like mm-hmm. they averaged 2.9 yards a carry against the Jaguars. It wasn't good. Devon Hamilton looked like an all-pro against them, but they didn't get into like third and long situations. They at least got like two yards, three yards consistently enough. And um, and by doing so, like, Davis Mills faced third and six instead of third and nine and third and 12, and that makes a big difference for them. And this was the same thing. They were able to have manageable third down situations where Mills was able to, like, see the defense pre-snap, make a quick decision off of it. Um, and then they also won the time possession battle, 34 to, and 52 to 25 minutes and eight seconds. Their drives went 75, 42, 94, 42, 75, 40, and 72 yards in this game. And they had one three and out, and it was their second drive of the game where they went negative eight yards with a punt. And so like this, I think, was like the ideal of what they wanted, a, t- a team that could run the ball well, set up manageable third downs, quick pass on third downs, and then maybe have like two or three you know shots completed downfield to create like big chunk plays to be able to set up things and then we'll make field goals if we have to and we'll force turnovers on defense, limit possessions. And then if we can do that enough times in a season, we will have a successful season. The issue is that the run defense was bad and the defense was bad. Aside from mm-hmm. forced turnovers. And if you don't force three turnovers a game, which requires the opponent to make a poor decision to lead to them, then you end up you know, being a four one team like they are at the moment too. Um, so like if it's, if it's beautiful, it's everything they wanted to have happen before the season that started it just took you know sixteen weeks for them to play the game they wanted to play. Well, I guess they'd say better late than never. Um, one thing I was just curious about—it looks like I found it here. 
Burkhead had not rushed for this many yards since like 2011 against Iowa when he was at Nebraska. So he had a game, 38 carries, 160 yards. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> he was, you know, he, he had, he had himself a day. I mean, but you know, good on him. Um, and you know, for a lot of these players, I don't know what the future will hold, but if they can take that performance and build on it for the next couple of games, cause I mean, you're still gonna have a number of guys out on uh, the COVID protocol. Maybe some will be able to come back since I think the NFL and the players association may have finalized the deal. And it just sounds based on like, like the new city. Yeah. It sounds like the deal is we don't care anymore. <laughs> well, like if you're, if you feel, this, if you feel, if you, if you feel sick, we'll test you. If you don't feel sick, don't worry about it. We're not going to test you all the time. And then if you are sick, you want to be in isolation for five days. Cause this is what the CDC says, you know? Yeah. Like, that, I'm that not, was, I'm that not, was and I'm not entirely against it. It's like these are people who are healthy. They're in great shape. Like really, you would want to be concerned about the elderly coaching staff you may have, but they have their you know have their vaccines and they're boosted and everything else. And if it you know works as it's been you know told to, you really shouldn't be that worried for like the elite athletes in the world to be like ravaged by you know COVID in this situation. So I don't know. Like I don't I don't have like a, I'm not tremendously upset that this is what they changed to. I just think the season, like a lot of these other leagues, like basketball was unwatchable. Hockey had to shut down for a brief period of time. Um, but the game's become unwatchable with how many scab players they've had to have. And they definitely need to make a change, yep. especially going into the postseason this year, you know? Like imagine Mahomes got COVID on a Monday and then couldn't play for 10 days after that, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, well, <laughs> For better or worse, the Colts are going to find that out because Wentz is now on that list and he's unvaccinated, so he's out for ten. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it at least the way the current uh, variant is Omicron, which kind of sounds like a Bond villain weapon or something, <laughs> you know, deploy the Omicron. Yeah. But um, it's you know, and you, you kind of have to adapt. I mean, we've got the vaccines out. Um, and at least what we're seeing with this variant is it's not, it's definitely spreading a lot easier, a lot faster, but it doesn't seem to have quite the impact that others like Delta or some of the others did. So, and some of that too is, you know, almighty dollar, you know, the NFL still wants butts and seats. That's where more money is. You can do the TV deals like last year, but that was last year. People understood that before the vaccine was in. I think at this point it's like, we're going to worship the almighty dollar, you know, take our chances with all of this. And we, we need people in the seats. Yeah. But I mean, I think a so, lot of it also comes down to the fact that like people have got like the NFL, I'm not talking about the entire populace as a whole, but the NFL, the elite athletes of the world, like they've gotten it and they've been fine. Like Aaron Rodgers himself, like I could play this week. It feels like a bad flu for me, you know, and it definitely affects people who are, you know, overweight more than other people who have other comorbidities more than other people too. And, uh, and like, I remember even like two years ago going to the 2020 season, there are people that said like people are going to die in the NFL because they're going to play this year. It's like, there's been a year and a half of information. Like if you're super healthy, you're probably going to be okay more likely than not. And there of course have been like, you know, circumstances that don't match that necessarily, but those are like the very small outlier, you know, and we've been living like this for, you know, two plus years now. And we haven't seen like a, any sort of traumatic cases for a professional athlete having it. And then it kind of goes along with it as well, as well, too. Like, you're not really, I think you're not risking the individual's, like, safety to a certain extent anymore. You're risking the people maybe around them. And then the coaching staff and, like, the elderly people, those are who you need to be concerned about. But the players themselves, I don't really think it's, uh, it's like, the deal that it's been made out to be for, 
you know, some of the other stuff, you know, and I think a lot of people are afraid of it, but these are the best athletes in the world in great shape. Well, and there's also, I'm sure there's always liability too. Um, yeah, I don't think I've recalled hearing as many cases about NFL players being impacted. I know there's been like with some baseball guys and others that they got it. And then when they came back, they struggled kind of to get back, mm -hmm. get back to what they were capable of performing. Um, and yeah, Rogers struggled a little bit, but that I think he was also fa you know facing some uh, toe issues as well. So it it does be, tend to be a case by case basis. Um, but ultimately, it's you know what level of risk are you willing to accept exactly. with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I a mean, great if way you're, to put it. And you know, to this point, it hasn't evolved, has not evolved into anything quite like you know the nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen influenza, which you know that worst pandemic in history outside of the black death so uh, you know it it hasn't evolved that way but and that starts getting to bigger issues beyond football like okay what how is society writ large going to deal with this and what are, what's our adapting strategies going forward so yeah i think but probably you know if the cdc's updated the five day one then i'm sure the nfl will jump on it because you don't want your superstars out especially with the playoffs that's where that tv money comes mm -hmm. in we need that extra, you know, extra playoff gate receipts, but you want the TV money. You want those good ratings for the playoffs. For sure. I bet it's like, imagine if we went to like a, I don't know, like a, champ, a conference championship game and there's 25 guys out with COVID because they have to sit out for 10 days, you know, and the NFL wouldn't move the game itself. And so I think that kind of goes along with it as well, too. Like it's a level of risk they're willing to take. We've seen this for two years. It doesn't seem like it's a super high risk for the players themselves. Um, and, and they're also like outdoors typically too and everything else goes along with it. So I don't know. It's just like it, the only thing I think is funny about it is that how it's how strident it was or how stringent it was to start the year. And then now like after we've had, you know, three weeks of games be completely like terrorized by it. They're like, all right, we're we're done being like this with it because we have to actually play these games, the real players again, you know. Yeah, and it again, it's just based on how this current variant's gone. Now, I mean, it's possible, you know, we could be, you know, heaven forbid, but we might be in the situation next year and we've got whatever the next Greek letter in the alphabet's going to be. Yeah. And maybe it's uh, maybe it's evolved and it's a bit stronger. You know, that, that's always a possibility. So it, it, you just, again, try to find that balance. But, you know, at this point, I think there's there's enough fatigue where people just want to, this stuff to move forward, and especially now because you're getting into the playoffs. You, this is where, you know, real time for pro football. So, yeah, any anything and everything you can do to make sure you get your best players on the field, get the best product, so you get all that good sponsor money and all those TV ratings and keep the NFL as the dominant financial force in entertainment, that's what you're going to do. Yeah. I uh, well, it's like the Texans right now, they also added Johnson – Paul Questenberry and Neville Hewitt's their COVID list. They're playing a 49ers team that may miss Jimmy Garoppolo with a thumb injury, uh, but they only have one player on their COVID list, and that's their punter. And so I don't, we don't know who's going to come back this week for the Texans, but I expect like after these new guidelines, we'll see you know Grenard back and Cooks back and uh, a laundry list of guys to make this game a little more even strength. But there probably won't be David Johnson, Neville Hewitt, and Paul Questenberry, unfortunately, though. Well, you know, no David Johnson. I mean, that that that's ball game right there. So, <laughs> yeah, how like, we got this one? I'll never. I like how David Coley said, you know, his performance uh, was wasn't because of an injury. 
And then all of a sudden he had an injury the week after, you know. <laughs> well, you know, maybe they're trying to borrow the Patriot model of like, you know, let's uh, pay no attention to what really is going on with the injury report here. And let's let's move on. But I think he's just bad. Um, and rather than bench him, they wouldn't be nice about it. You know, he's just slow and bad and old. Yeah. I, it, well, that <laughs> we, we've had quite a bone of contention with that. But I mean, that's that's what the divine and most holy protection brain trust is going with. So. Are you going to de- dispute the will? <laughs> yeah, I think this will finally be the year where David Johnson's not going to be here for 2022. Um, defensively, you know, the Texans only forced four third downs in this game, and those led to field goals each time. And so this came a week after Brandon Staley went for it five times on fourth downs against Kansas City and was two for five. In this game, he went six or nine on third down, kicked field goals in each fourth down they had. They didn't punt once in this game. Uh, but they did have the three turnovers, though. So they kicked a field goal uh, to go up 3-0 on 4th and 7 at the 32 after Ross Blacklock defended a pass at the line of scrimmage. On 4th and 5 at the 28, down 7-3, they kicked a field goal. And on 4th and 13 with 5.46 left in the second quarter, they kicked a field goal down 17-12 to make it 17-15. Uh, what were your take on his fourth down decisions this week? Do you feel like he kind of turtled after... His you know guns blazing game against the Chiefs, or was he or was this just his decision to play down to the opponent that he had, where he thought this is the Texans, we don't have to score in every possession, we can kind of get get points as we can and milk it from there. I, I kind of think it was a case of opponent like Kansas City, even though for the bulk of the season Kansas City hasn't necessarily been as explosive as they usually are, but you know that game they had the week prior, I think they were going aggressive because. You know, particularly in the fourth quarter, you saw Mahomes get going when uh, Kelsey was just destroying their secondary. And and I feel like he felt he had to be aggressive. And and most of those, a number of those were kind of in that no man's land where you're probably okay to go for it. Uh, But I do think here with Houston and Texans, because coming into it, they were averaging like 14, 14 points a game and change. And knowing how lack of explosive the Texans are. that sounds high. Even 14 points a game sounds high this year. Well, their their average jumped after they, you know, dropped all those points against Jacksonville. So, you know, when they, when they got those points, that actually upped it to over 14. Uh, but I think he was looking at it from, you know, let's get – and it was earlier in the game too. So, like, okay, let's get our points. We'll be fine. We'll keep the points going. And then, you know, second half we'll overtake them. I don't disagree with kicking the field goal on fourth and 13. That's probably a bridge too far to try to go for it. You know, you take the points. I'm, I know, he, but then he tries to get aggressive on like the two point conversion. And I know there's analytics. People will try to be a bit more aggressive, but there's usually, it, you almost think of it like blackjack. There's sort of like the basic strategy in the card you follow in the NFL. Typically, you know, the basic, two point is you don't necessarily chase the two points in the first half and not that it made a difference in the end per se but you know in the first half why chase the two point it's there to try to go up 14 7 you can still be 13 7 and fine um i don't know if i would have necessarily done that but i I don't think the fourth down decisions hurt san diego as much um it you know they're one on three but the one they went for in the fourth quarter kind of made sense, you know, to cut it to four points. 
if he can get the touchdown and extra point, then you're up three. And then the other one was just like garbage time, whatever, you know. Maybe you're hoping for a miracle to come back from down 18 at that point. So I don't think the fourth down decisions hurt him in this game. He might have been gun-shy in one respect, but I think it was more a strategy thing. How aggressive are you going to be against a team like the Texans versus a team like Kansas City? Yeah, and I think that's what it came down to as well for him. I think the, the bad decision in this game that was going down or was kicking the field goal in fourth and five, the 28, um, being down only 7-3, you know. Like you go up and you can get a touchdown that drive and be able to kind of flip it around. And then even then, the 28, like the field position is not that big of a deal. So even if you come come down with only three and you get in the red zone, and Houston starts the ball at like the 10-yard line, the 8-yard line, that's typically a good, you know, successful drive for the one after that. Except this time, the Texans did have a 92-yard touchdown drive in this one anyways. But I do think the 4th and 5 one was bad. And then against Kansas City, the only bad 4th down decision I think he made, and we agreed on this one, was the one at the end of the half where he went for him fourth and two yeah, seconds left. And um, I think it was either it was either Sorensen or Neiman made a play out there in the flat to stop it. Because if you don't convert there, you don't get the added benefit of Kansas City starting the ball at their own two-yard line. That that A lot of people forget about that part of the equation that comes into play whenever you go for him fourth down. is also the field position that goes along with it too, especially down at the end zone. It's not just necessarily the four-point difference, but it's also... The expected points you get on the drive following a drive where the opponent starts the ball their own two-yard line. And so that one didn't make much sense because you're at the end of the half and you don't get that benefit too for it. But I do think all in all, like Staley's done a good job managing fourth downs. I just would have gone for him fourth and five. And then last week against Kansas, Kansas City, I would not have gone for it at the end of the half as well too. And I agree. The big thing I would say too is that, yeah, that would have put you up. You know, you could have had a touchdown and then been up you know, doing my public math here, he would have possibly been up 11 going into the half, which is you'd rather have that against Kansas City. But even with a field goal, you're up seven, and then San Diego got the ball to start the second half. So to me, I had no problem with going up at least a full touchdown and an extra point, and then you give me the ball in the second half, and they were moving the ball fairly well uh, down the field. Now, obviously, they didn't convert your fourth, a lot of fourth downs, but you know, I think in that case it worked fine. Fourth and five in the first half where they were on the field, eh, I, to me that's a coin flip. I mean, you, you could, you couldn't. You know, if you seven six at that point, fine. Then your offense, you know, then they, the next drive, they got a touchdown. Didn't get the two-point conversion. But still at that point, I don't necessarily disagree with him in the first half doing that where he was in the game and against the opponent. But... You know, they have other problems to worry about than their fourth down percentages uh, against the Texans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess my biggest point is, like, if that's the team you're going to be and you're going to be an aggressive team, like, that's a perfect chance to go for it. They're on fourth and five, you know, down, you know, 7-3 at the moment, so kicking the field goal. And so, like, if that's what your idea, identity wants to be, that's, like, a time when you need to go for instead of, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, cowarding out and uh, and kicking the field goal there instead. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's what ifs and what might have been, so. Uh-huh, and that's that's what this, I guess, show is all about, is what ifs and what might have been. <laughs> um, so this week, the, te- the, hot takes. the Texans played a scab secondary. They had two interceptions. Jonathan Owens undercut a post route on a deep middle pass attempt, and that was the only pass attempt that Justin Herbert attempted over 30 yards, and what's made the Chargers so successful the previous, you know, three weeks is that Justin Herbert was 
coming off of play action, using different dropbacks and different angles to be able to make deep throws like 40, 50, 60 yards downfield. And this week, that was the only attempt he tried over 30 yards that was picked off by by Owens. Um, Tavier Thomas picked off a pass and took it to the house. The end of the game, on like a, a hook route that seemed like just Herbert overthrew, that led to a touchdown there. And the Houston also recovered a fumble forced by Demarcus Walker that Owens also recovered to in this one. Um, and again, the Texans didn't force one punt. They only stopped the Chargers three times on third down this game. There's a lot of three field goals, but what was really kind of a big difference too is just the fact of the number of turnovers they forced again this week too. So I think more about this defense throughout how the year has progressed. What do you think about the job Levy Smith has done? Do you think he's been a plus defensive coordinator? Do you think he's been below average? Are you surprised by how this defense has performed with Levy Smith as defensive coordinator? Well, I think the biggest thing coming in was, you know, turnovers are kind of a fickle mistress. Um, it, it In some years you'll get them in bunches, some you don't. I mean, I felt like 2013 we only had like nine turnovers that season or nine forced turnovers, even though the defense played pretty well up until the end when they were worn down. Um, I think the turnovers have definitely may have overinflated some of the ratings for this defense. Um, because if they're not getting the turnovers, yeah, people are marching up and down the field at will. Uh, they don't necessarily have like that dominant, either dominant run stop game or that dominant pass rush. They don't have that. And if they're not getting the, t- and maybe it's been better emphasis that Lovey Smith has as opposed to Anthony Weaver, Romeo Cornell, about really a concerted effort for, you know, knocking the ball out and trying to force those fumbles and what you can do on interceptions. So I think given what we have on the roster, I don't think Lovey Smith has been a bad coordinator. I think the defense has been the stronger unit. That's not saying a whole lot, but the defense is definitely stronger. It's not a unit that could carry a team to win a lot of games. But I think the defense has done overall better than the offense. And I think you've seen a lot of games where if the offense have been able to move the ball even somewhat significantly, the defense performs better. But they've been on the field. Like there were certain games they're on the field so long that they just ran out of juice. So I think Lovey Smith has been – he hasn't been a bad hire. And I think the Texans have done better when they've had experienced defensive coordinators than, you know, new guys. Uh and so I don't think he's done a horrible job. I don't think he's in the running for like defensive coordinator of the year or anything, but you know, the defense has been, it's definitely been better. I think than 2020, at least because of how they've leveraged the turnovers, you take those out. Then I, I'm not sure this defense is better than what we had last season. Last season wasn't great. Yeah. RIP Anthony Weaver. Yeah. He, his one, his one addition to society was playing J.J. Watt nose tackle against the Kansas City Chiefs. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, no, it was something. Uh, but, yeah, I just, you know, and, I, and he's here in Baltimore right now. I mean, he, you know, Baltimore's had their own struggles, but mostly with injury and COVID. They're, they're just running out of people. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think Lovey's been a terrible defensive coordinator. Not great, but not terrible. Yeah, it's like Baltimore is like the South in like 1865 when they were trotting out 54-year-old men and 13-year-old boys to, to go find the Civil War. And then like the Texans were kind of like that last week as well, too. It's like we had to assign guys to practice squad, elevate them the same day, 
teach them, you know, eight plays and get them out there, you know, and, and hope it goes um, as well as possible and run that, you know, middle school offense or defense that they have run, you know, before. I think my thing about Levy Smith this year is that, like, starting off the season and playing that pure cover two was hilarious and stupid and, you know, silly to expect that you can just run that same defense again, especially without a front four pass rush or good coverage linebackers um, to do so. But I think they did it because they didn't have the cornerback play at all to do much of anything else. But the one thing I will say about Lovey is I love how tiny his play call sheet is. And then also he's just <laughs> he's constantly changed the defense around this year. They run cover two. They show double A-gap pressure, roll to cover two. They blitz six sometimes, play cover one. They play cover three to help stop the run. They've been playing quarters more often. They were playing quarters with a robber um, the week before against Jacksonville. They play some cover six. Like they've gone from doing the bare minimum, like 2002 NFL football, to now being like an actual NFL defense over the span of the year. And he's also constantly move move guys like in and out of spots to try to get them in the best spots to play and try to get the best talent out on the field. And like typically, like you'd think an older coach like him would be very rigid. And just kind of keep the same guys out there, keep running the same cover too, keep trying it over and over again. Just say like, well, we just got to figure it out. We got to get there. One day it will happen. And Levy has seen that approach <laughs> at all. He's been constantly innovating and trying to make it better. And uh, it hasn't, it's like it's worked out better than I thought it was going to. And like the turnovers have made the defense better than actually is on, like, on the field itself. But it still has been a much better defense than I would have ever imagined going into the season. And it's a testament to, you know, Lovey making the changes he's made throughout this season. Yeah, and even, like, there was some semblance when he was in Illinois. Like, he would, you know, he generally tried to keep to that cover two as much as possible. But there were times when he would shift just as easily to a cover zero. Like, when he had that wild game against Michigan State, he was able to do that. Uh, and it paid off. So I think, and maybe it's helped that he doesn't have to be the head coach guy. Because this is his first time as a coordinator in 20 years. So he can kind of look and see and then adapt and not be so ironclad lock. It will be cover two and we will have this cover two. This Tampa system's going to work, by gosh. And he's able to flex and try to get what he can out of it. Again, you know, you're not playing the strongest hand to begin with. You don't have Warren Sapp coming through that doorway or Derek Brooks or, you know, you ain't got those guys coming. So, uh, but he's, you know... I would agree it's been better than I expected. It's not great, but you know the defense has been stronger than the offense this year. Yeah, for sure. I uh, yeah, like it's been kind of like I don't know. I guess kind of fun watching the all twenty two every week and seeing how Levy has kind of changed things up. You know, it's been I don't know. I guess one of the few kind of good things I guess about the season too. So one of the stranger things about Nick Casario's job this year as a general manager is that. It seems like his backup and his depth um, and his secondary and like tertiary acquisitions may have been better than his like starting players of the first guys he brought into this team. Xavier Thomas has been better than Desmond King and Terrence Mitchell. Neville Hewitt's been you know just as good as you know Christian Kirksey this year, if not better, as far as just like a, a tackling linebacker. Roy Lopez has been better than Jaleel Johnson. Jonathan Owens was better than Eric Murray this past week, even though we know he didn't sign Murray, but he did pencil him as a starting, you know, strong safety this year. Rex Burke has been better than David Johnson. This entire offensive line's been better since they, you know, lost Tunsil and Cannon and have kind of changed things around, you know, to the extremes that they've had too. And this past week was the best game they've had as an offensive line with their, you know, backups and backups to the backups. Nico Collins has been better than Chris Conley. Brevin Jordan has been better than Jordan Aikens. 
Um, is this one of the strangest parts of his tenure so far that the depth and the backups to the backups have had you know good performances like this and may have been better than some of the expected stars they had coming into the season? Well, <laughs> you know, when he went on this massive free agent bargain basement blitz at the beginning of the offseason, I, I think we kind of felt that, you know, they were building for depth. And I don't know who made those comments, but it was sort of like the idea, like, our second and third stringers were probably going to be better than your second and third stringers. Now the first stringers, you know, they're going to, the other guys are going to win. And so there's something to be said for that. Uh, you know, cause depth is obviously important. I mean, yeah, it's a superstar league, but injuries are going to happen and suddenly boom, what are you going to do? Someone's got to step up. Uh, so I think if nothing that else, that's kind of a testament that you signed guys that had, you know, kind of low ceilings and maybe higher floors. You brought in experienced guys mostly. And, you know, this is a situation where that pays off, particularly when you have like either just your standard injury, but then like massive COVID attrition, you know, all out due to the various protocols. And they, you know, they actually quasi validated the strategy. I mean, you know, you, you do have to get the superstars if you really want to make a, make things move forward. But, you know, if, if there was a benefit to all of this signing where you had guys kind of at the same level, not great starters, but definitely better backups and better third stringers, I mean, it kind of paid off. Had a joke that the Texans were going to try to win the preseason with all of this, all of their strong second, third, and fourth string depth. Well, kind of paid off here. So, you know, that that's at least that's a good thing when you had the type of depth that you could weather 23 guys off the, you know, 23 of your normal players off the roster, you're bringing in noobs and, <laughs> you know, that actually worked. Yeah. And I, I think, too, like, one of the things that New England has been so good at, you know, during the Bill Belichick era, is just, like, finding talent from unexpected sources, you know, where they find Division mm-hmm. two players, Division three players, they find ex-lacrosse players, they find undrafted free agents, they find guys that have been cut four or five different times, and then for whatever reason, like, the personality meshes or... They bring him for a workout, and they just like beautiful, or they have certain combine measurements, whatever you know, reason it, like kind of the method to their madness. I don't know, but they've always been able to like they oh they lift every single stone they can, and so I think that's been one of the good things about Nick Casario as a GM is that like although like I didn't agree, you know, although like the free agent stuff didn't work out very well this year, and a lot of these players didn't do anything, and he wastes a lot of cap space and dead money because of it, and the contract restructure is stupid and everything else involving that, like he at least like. Those like depth kind of signings that you have to have to build a really good football team eventually. Once you have the cornerstone stuff locked down, it seems like he has a good like feeling and ability to do that part of the job. Like Tavier Thomas is a good example. Owens is a good example um, of those exact you know kind of measurements we've seen so far this year. And so I'm kind of interested to see like what he can do with the full offseason and everything else, and and also him just like actually getting undrafted free agents too. Like, I would love to see Casario sign 20 undrafted free agents and see their ability to do something like that. I think with, like, a, a longer, being here longer in the building and having a better chance to scout everybody, I think next year he should be able to do a better job of that, too. So it's a it's a nice thing for Casario. It's a nice little feather in his hat whenever there has been, you know, a lot of great things about the season, too. Well, given how he's managed the cap space for 2022, he's going to probably have to sign a lot of undrafted free agents. So <laughs> he ain't got room for anyone else. Mm-hmm. So my, my last question for you for tonight's show is that this is another thing that I've been you're know, kind of reading and seeing from people um, as I've talked to them on the internet 
And it's that Nick Casarius hit on each and every single one of his draft picks from last season. So would you consider Davis Mills, Nico Collins, Brevin Jordan, Garrett Wallow, and Roy Lopez all hits as of this part of the season? Well, I think where draft picks are concerned, uh, I kind of go with the school of thought that you really got to wait about three years to see whether they truly pan out. Now, you do that a lot. I know that's more skewed towards your first and second rounders. But I think with the value of where these guys were drafted, I think they've they've panned out. I mean, I'll save my final grades for, you know, we talk about his 2021 draft in 2024. But I think, you know, they've gotten all of these guys have gotten on the field. and They've made some meaningful contributions. Even Walla, who I didn't expect to do much other than special teams. Uh, Lopez obviously is a great surprise, a sixth round pick that's come in and made himself a part of the rotation. Uh, I think, yeah, he's going to be ultimately judged on Mills being the quarterback and you know, the, how we all, (laughs) the sports media sphere tends to overreact one way or the other. So right now they're, you know, wanting to anoint Mills should be at least like, you know, for rookie of the year consideration. But I think where they were drafted, and I think that the fact that they've gotten contributions, certainly more contributions out of this draft than they did in the 2020 draft. So yeah. if you want to compare it to that sense, yes, then he's done better. Now, again, talk to me in 2024 about the final grades for all these guys, but it there is some encouragement like, okay, you're getting guys that fit within the system, and when they get in, they're actually making meaningful contributions. Now, how many are going to make all rookie? I uh, don't know, but... You know, they're at least you're drafting guys, even if you're a lower draft pick in the NFL these days, sixth, seventh round pick, you probably better be ready to contribute something. It ain't the throwaway when you had like 10, 12 rounds back in the day. Yeah. You, you got to come in and be ready to do something. Whether or not you're going to have that pressure of the money, you got to play. And they all have at least been able to make the field. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that, that that's a good point. And just like the fact that they're all out there and playing, participating now. I think, you know, you know, it means a lot. I think like Mills, you know, yeah, I still see him as a backup quarterback. I don't, I'm not really ready to say that he can be like an average starting quarterback, which is what like you at least want considering the life cycle of the team and paying a guy and the contract that he has. Like average, an average quarterback on a third-round salary, you can build a good football team around that. A below-average quarterback, maybe, but you're like having like an all-time, you know, defense and all-time right offense to do so. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but I think he's at least a backup quarterback, which isn't a bad pick in the third round. You know, I'd rather see like a guard that's a year and year old starter than backup quarterback, but that's you know, a different thing. Um, I think Nico Collins can play, but I think he's quarterback dependent. And also he just has to do a better job of selling the vertical to open up some of his other routes. He just doesn't turn quarterback cornerbacks hips enough to be able to kind of create some of these routes. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of catches that are contested that, you know, shouldn't be as much of the route he's running. And so he has a lot of work to do, but I do think with like a good quarterback, we don't really know what he has until he has a good quarterback there. Um, you know, Roy Lopez is going to be like a year-in and year-out good run stopper. He kind of reminds me of like a Likai Fodu where he doesn't like, Lopez had a few, snap, has a, had a few snap, sacks this year, but, you know, with him, he can at least like collapse the pocket sometimes. It's a pretty good bull rush. If the quarterback holds on the ball for like four or five seconds, he can kind of like slap his way you know, to the quarterback too. But he seems like he's a really intelligent run stopper and reads his keys well. It makes quick reads and 
hits his hands where he needs to be in the right spots to play the ball. And then Jordan's a, a yak monster. He hasn't blocked yet. We don't know if he can block. He finally beat some linebackers man coverage this week, which was a good sight to see because he hasn't really done that yet. A lot of his receptions previously just been you know holes in his own coverage, but you know he broke a lot of tackles this week, caught all four of his passes for 56 yards, and he's definitely better than Jordan Aikens, and I, I have no idea why they didn't trade Jordan Aikens to the trade deadline, even if it was like a 2027 seventh-round pick. And then Garrett Wallow is all like Dylan Cole, except he's healthy. Where he can't play in the box on first and second down, he just gets you know, devoured by offensive linemen. But he should be like a nickel linebacker and a special teams player. Like that's a good pick for where he was selected too. And so like I don't think he's yeah. necessarily like hit. I think he's hit in the fact of these guys have all been able to play this year and participate, and they can find some sort of role in NFL roster. But I think like we only know that Roy Lopez and Brevin Jordan are probably stars in the NFL at the moment, and like that's not a bad thing at all. That's just kind of like how it kind of looks at the moment. But I think he's had a very good draft. And the two things that give me like hope for considerability and good football team in the future has been his draft this year. And then also like how good some of these kind of like depth and like unknown signings have been this season too. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to get like all, you know, all pro bowl, all rookie, all caliber performances from all seven or all your entire draft class. I think only, Maybe only like the 07 Giants got that when they won the Super Bowl when like every single draft pick had incredibly meaningful contributions. It, that That's hard. I mean, you're always, drafts are always, you're always taking a bit of a chance. But especially what we've seen on some of the other drafts, think 2020 in particular, you know, this draft has definitely yielded players that, okay, that actually can make some meaningful contribution to the NFL roster and were not, like going to have to replace all of these guys next year. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think another good example, of like what you just mentioned, the Giants is the you know the 2018 uh, Colts draft class, the one where they got Darius Leonard and Quentin Nelson, oh, and they yeah, got the that, was, that got, was a good one. And like that's what has built the entire Colts roster as it is today. You know that one yeah, draft they, they, class they that they absolutely draft, nailed, too. and the Seahawks have one too that they nailed as well. That kind of spurned um, the team that they had throughout the 2010s. That you know, it was a, a very good team that won, you know, one Super Bowl that should won two Super Bowls. But that's our that's our show for tonight, Scott. What do you have going on this week? How can we find you? Um, and then also tell us about the, the Astro stuff you've been doing a little bit lately too. Well, you know, just continuing the writing stuff. Um, I do write a few things for uh, our sister blog on uh, Sportsbook, you know, SB Nation. Um, not regular contributions, but, you know, as the spirit moves me, so – doing some stuff with uh, the crawfish boxes. Um, obviously still doing the writing here. Um, trying to work out what I'm going to do for this week. We'll see come Friday, you know, some New Year's Eve reading. <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, it always comes together you know, magically. I'm excited to see what New Year's resolutions you may have for Houston Texans for uh, this Friday for us. But that's all That's all we have for tonight. I'm going to watch the video, you know, tonight and tomorrow and post some clips tomorrow evening. And then uh, I'll try to write something this week, something with some actual meat and potatoes. It's just been you know, hard with time lately. But uh, until next time, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Battle Red Radio, and thank you for being on tonight, Scott. All right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.